The Jewish views on Jewish caricatures. Cartoonist Paul Solomons tells us why Jews in caricature aren't necessarily offensive. Secret Whitechapel, photographer Louis Burke tells us about his research into the Jewish East End of London. And Light Up a Life, Sarit Gafan from Tikkun tells us how you could be making a difference to someone this winter. But first, with a roundup of the Jewish news this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. Donald Trump has been condemned by the Board of Deputies of British Jews after he shared videos on Twitter that had been posted by the far-right group Britain First. Some of the unverified footage in the videos, which were put out by the group's deputy leader, appeared to show Muslims committing crimes. The Board of Deputies said the President's actions were of grave concern and commented that Britain First is a nasty far-right group which seeks to intimidate minorities. Emily Thornbury has branded those who boycott Israeli products or academics as bigots. The Shadow Foreign Secretary's comments came during a speech at Labour Friends of Israel's annual lunch. She also pledged that defending the rights of Jewish people would remain a cornerstone for a future Labour government, which would also recognise Palestine in the interests of Israel, the Palestinians and peace. But a report by a pro-Israel think tank has predicted that a Labour government could have a chilling effect on UK-Israel relations, with decades of intelligence and defence cooperation at risk. An American organisation has said it will help Belgium's Jews challenge in court the banning of non-stun animal slaughter. The New York-based Lawfare Project say the ban passed earlier this year affects kosher and halal slaughter, with lawyers for the Jewish community saying it's an attack on religious freedom. Benjamin Netanyahu has said Israel will open an embassy in the central African country of Rwanda for the first time. The Israeli Prime Minister met Paul Kagame, the Rwandan president, in Kenya and told him it was part of the expansion of Israel's presence in Africa. The two countries re-established ties more than 20 years ago after they were broken during the 1973 Yom Kippur War. And finally, if you have the odd £125,000 or so lying around, then a kippah encrusted with thousands of Swarovski crystals and with a flawless two-carat diamond sitting on top of a Star of David could be yours for that very special Hanukkah present. Just make your bid on the luxury website veryfirst2.com. That's the news. Over to Andrew for the sport. Thanks a lot, Viv. An Iranian wrestler has spoken of his disappointment after he was instructed to lose a match to avoid meeting an Israeli in the next round. Eliezer Karimi was ordered by his coach to throw the fight so he wouldn't face Uri Kalishnikov at the Under-23 World Championships in Poland. But it was the Israeli who had the last laugh as he walked away with a bronze medal. Leeds United is reportedly tracking Red Bull Salzburg's Israeli midfielder Monaz Dabur ahead of the January transfer window. The 25-year-old striker has previously played in Israel and Switzerland and has scored once in seven appearances for the national side. And finally, the World Chess Federation has said it's undertaking a huge effort to include Israeli players in the Speed Chess Championship, which is being hosted in Saudi Arabia next month. Deputy President Georgios Makropoulos confirmed documents had been sent to the organisers, saying the visa status is currently pending. Don't forget, you can keep up to date with all the latest Jewish sports at jewishnews.co.uk. 
Andrew, thank you very much indeed. Hello there and welcome to this episode of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave. Let's start off, as we usually do, with a look through your copy of The Jewish News for this week. And joining me to go through it is editor Richard Ferrer and news editor Justin Cohen. Welcome to you both. Now, on the front page is a story of three parts, really. Well, there's three separate stories, let's be honest. And the first one we're going to look at is skydiving Robertson Frieda Kaplan, who was on this show a couple of weeks ago. She was, and we reported at the time when she decided to jump out of a plane at 10,000 or so feet to raise money for a wish ambulance, which is something that helps grant people who are terminally ill a last wish, an opportunity to get to where they need to go. Frida Kaplan's very own father, in fact, was terminally ill and was able to attend his grandson's wedding just four days before he passed away, thanks to one of these wish ambulances, which I hasten to add aren't just for the Jewish community for Jews and non-Jews alike. Each costs £100,000 and Frida's jump raised £10,000. And although we're celebrating Frida, it's also important to say that she wasn't alone in this incredible fundraising expedition. She also was helped by a London GP called Judith Tobin, who also did her thing too. So mazel tov to Frida and uh, what a wonderful thing she's done for the community and uh, for Jews and non-Jews alike. Absolutely. And it's always nice to see something positive on the front page, isn't it, Justin? Absolutely. And I think it's important to note that this is actually the first wish ambulance for the UK. Previously, Frida had seen these in operation in Israel. I think it was in Israel that that her father benefited from, from use of one. It's also been used in many other countries around the world. I think it started in Holland. But yeah, this is the very first for anywhere in the UK. Indeed. Well, muzzles off to her, as we said, that's lovely news. Let's have a look at something probably nearer the other end of the spectrum, I shouldn't wonder. Emily Thornbury, well, this is potentially positive. She's been saying what? Yeah, I I went to the Labour Friends of Israel annual lunch this week. And I have to say, when I first listened to Emily Thornbury's keynote speech, my initial reaction was... The bar's so low that the, the main thing is that she gets gets through it without making any major mistakes or causing any particular upset. And she certainly achieved that. I felt initially that it was delivered with a limited amount of enthusiasm, but actually going through the speech, through the transcript afterwards and writing this up, there were some quite significant comments in there, some quite important lines that were drawn. Talking about boycotts, for example, she said that, that they equate to bigotry, and that's certainly the strongest comment we've had on boycotts of Israel from anyone within the current Labour administration. She was also talking about her recent visit to Israel with both Labour Friends of Israel and Labour Friends of Palestine in the Middle East. Uh, She was talking about how anti-Semitism must be fought at every turn and how anti-Semites must be drummed out of the party. Of course, within a few hours of this, we had the latest example of such a character within the party. A member of the party in in Hendon specifically was shown to have tweeted a number of disturbing tweets over over a number of months. This was actually exposed by the councillor Adam Langleben from Barnet. He had drawn this to the attention of the party some months ago, I think at a local level rather than a national level, and nothing had been done. He got fr- so frustrated, he decided to take it upon himself to, to tweet, I think, about 19 different messages she had put out. It was quite a dramatic post, one that was very well retweeted around the country. As a result of his intervention there, within a few hours of him doing that, the party had suspended this person. 
So could have happened earlier. I don't know if it had reached the National Party earlier on, but certainly his intervention made sure that it did and it was dealt with pretty quickly at that point. All these things, of course, have happened this week in the framework of a uh, report that's just been published by BICOM, which I think states what is only too blindingly obvious to anybody who has uh, an eye on politics and the Labour Party at the moment, which is the clear and present danger that would be posed by uh, Prime Minister Corbyn. This report by BICOM this week says it would have a chilling effect on UK-Israel relations in lots of different ways. I know we've spoken about this over and over and I'm, you know, I'm bored of my own voice when it comes to the, the uh, issues of Labour and, and, and alleged anti-Semitism. Things like trade between the two, reduced investment in Israel, diplomatic moves, the fact that when temperatures are going to rise as they inevitably will, if not between Hamas, then certainly Hezbollah, because that seems to be where the main danger now lies in, in terms of Israel's relations with its enemies. There will be a a swing of sympathy and support away from Israel towards its uh, adversaries. So all these things have been earmarked by BICOM in this report and it gives, I think, the framework of what Emily Thornbury was trying to achieve at LFI, Labour Friends of Israel, um, a little bit of context. We see the problem, of course, with that is that those are disturbing to us here on the Jewish Views and, of course, to Jewish News readers. But then beyond the community there are of course those who don't see this as a problem necessarily don't see it as a priority and it is still not enough to put people off the current labor administration which as it stands could pose a threat to israel if they get into power as BICOM would have you believe. No, I think well, the community is self-critical. It's critical of Israel when it needs to be. Sadly, it's, it needed to be in, in the last few years, perhaps more than it's comfortable with. What I think makes us balk, what, what makes us very concerned is is the one-eyed nature of a lot of uh, Jeremy Corbyn and his shadow cabinet's pronouncements when it comes to Israel. This inability, this willful neglect when it comes to actually accepting the position Israel finds itself in and the good things it achieves and the fact that it is a strong, loyal, important an ally in this difficult time for the United Kingdom. All those things need to be taken in context and I think the a Labour government personally and obviously the BICOM report bears this out would, would fail to do that. Potentially disturbing times. Okay, well, let's have a look at some of the other stories that are making the paper this week. And we're going to find out more about this a little later on when we speak to the man himself. But Paul Solomons, your cartoonist, is in the paper not only for the cartoons this week, but for something else. What's he been up to? Yeah, enraged from Edgware and annoyed from Golders Green have been writing in in great numbers saying, what's Paul Solomon's doing these cartoons with large noses of, of Jewish people? And obviously it evokes upset and outrage of you know, all these sort of horrendous caricatures of the past of Der Sturmer and, and this is anti-Semitic and how dare a Jewish newspaper be doing this to itself? Well, of course, the man, the man is a, a, a very talented scribbler, a brilliant artist and secondly he is a caricaturist so he exaggerates certain striking characteristics in in people and for the sake of comedy he uh, accentuates those for his work I mean if, if anyone was going to do a caricature of me it'd be very difficult I'm not sure there's many characteristics that you'd want to poke fun of but probably my eyebrows that might be one thing or I'm not sure I mean we're looking around the room where would we go for you if we wanted to draw something people go oh that's Phil Dave it would probably be my your, hair probably well, be your, you have your, your very tall hair um, <laughs> or just any, anything just about sadly your, not as tall as it once was but let's not go into that anything about your uh, dashing looks and, and overall demeanour I'm sure where would we pick holes in Justin 
your, your glasses, perhaps, or, or the fact that you often sport stubble. Or your, is anyone else worried where this conversation is going? I, well, well, you see how difficult <laughs> the subject worse. is. Could have, gone, could have gone worse. I know, that's what bothers me. <laughs> you, you see but, how, how difficult the subject is. It's a minefield to talk about it, let alone to draw about it. Well, we are going to talk about it a little bit later on. Now, I suppose, actually, one other question that should be raised from the paper this week is, why is the royal wedding in the Jewish news? Well, I think this is a story that's hopefully brought a smile to people across the country, including members of the Jewish community. You've mentioned the good news on our front page. This was a great news story, I think, for the country that was dominating the front pages earlier in the week. An additional Jewish angle is the fact that the very first world leader to tweet their Mazel Tov wishes to the new couple was the President of Israel, uh, Reuven Rivlin. He did so, and he also invited them at the same time to visit Israel to honeymoon. So... Richard's very clever headline, The Land of Milk and Honeymoon. Hey, I see what you did there. <laughs> Can I just speak on behalf of, of all men in the UK of, of a certain age and just say that we had never even heard Ms. Markle speak before this week. I'd only ever seen her picture and obviously watched her in her uh, TV programme, Suits, but I never actually heard her as a person. She is articulate, charming, intelligent. I can see what Harry saw in her and I think she makes Kate seem kind of cardboard and, and dull by comparison wow what really a statement how she, could you she's i mean oh, i think all men have fallen in love with her slightly this week and harry's a lucky man i've admitted it to my wife so uh, but um, we're, we're trying to get through it but well if her royal highness the duchess of cambridge is listening let me reassure you that we still love you so thank you very much good gracious me well there you go that's i'm afraid all we've got time for for a look at the paper for this week is, is treason still an offense thank you very much indeed do not forget, though, you can pick up your copy of The Jewish News every Thursday across London, or you can read the e-paper online at jewishnews.co.uk. Well, as you've just been hearing, there is a special article in this week's Jewish News which looks at the depiction of Jews in caricature. It's been written by the JN's very own Paul Solomons, whose work is frequently enjoyed within the paper. And of course, our very own Jewish Views podcast cover illustrates that as well. I'm delighted to say that we can now speak to Paul, who joins me on the line from his home studio. And Paul, can you maybe start off just by telling us what it is exactly you've been looking at this week and, and why now? Well, what happened was, let me let me go back to the beginning, <laughs> where I had a letter passed on to me by Richard Ferrer, the, the lovely editor of the Jewish News, and it said that it was disgraceful that I should be drawing characters with large noses because Jewish newspapers shouldn't, shouldn't depict Jews with large noses, and we should be ashamed of ourselves, and particularly me. And there were several points to be made. First of all, I don't draw Jews with large noses. I draw characters with large noses. That's the way I draw. It's my style, and that's that's the first important point, I suppose. The other one is that whereas normally this sort of thing doesn't bother me, it, let me get this straight first of all, it's not something that I, I lie awake <laughs> worrying about. But the thing that has got me thinking that it's it's possibly time to to say something about it is that for years we've been almost tiptoeing around the subject of noses and it all it all goes back i mean there, there's been anti-semitism and jews depicted with with large noses for years and years dating way back to the 12th century and and in shakespeare and all that but it's actually more recently wartime 
the Nazis and their propaganda pictures of Jews that have been responsible for a lot of people's sensitivity about the subject. And I feel that it's it's time that we should stop this because we're almost pandering to the propaganda. And by saying, let's let's pretend that large noses aren't out there, it's almost saying, okay, they've won. But, yeah, um, but that, then, of course, the other thing you need to consider is that if we start playing up to stereotypes that so many Jews are still sensitive to, you might say it's time to move on. But let's be honest, there are a lot of us that are still quite sensitive to the stereotypes that have plagued us for years. If we start using those stereotypes in illustrations that, that we as a community have done ourselves, then surely there must be a part of you that understands why people would say, well, hang on, if we're doing it, then that's saying it's okay for others to do it. I'm a big believer in freedom of speech. So to some extent, I do think it's okay for people to do whatever they want. I, you know, and even if it offends people. I think I have a right to be offended, as do your listeners. Yes, indeed. Let's not get away from the fact that I do realise that people can be offended by such things. And I don't want, I don't set out to offend anybody. My job as a cartoonist is to, in this case, make people laugh. There, there are greater callings as well where you can actually change the world with cartoons. And we've seen all sorts of things over the years that do that. But, but actually, my job is just a quick laugh. People spend a few seconds looking at the page. Now, though I don't draw Jewish stereotypical noses, <laughs> Stereotypes are very important to cartooning. Uh, let's uh, think of something like, for example, the the burglar that we all know and love. Now, if I draw a picture of a burglar and he looks like someone going to the office, no one's going to know that that's what it is. But if I draw a striped jumper and a mask and carrying a sack with swag on it, then people instantly know what it is. I can get on and do my job and tell the joke. So it's very important that people do get the chance to to understand what's going on in a picture and stereotypes to some extent are important for that. That's all well and good. But however, if you bear in mind that, and okay, fair enough, you were just picking an example off the top of your head there, but yes. there is a bit of a difference between drawing someone who is breaking the law in the form of a burglar and someone who is actually of a religious background. The difference is that it's not very easy to offend a burglar. It's quite easy to offend someone of a religious background and therefore depicting them with stereotypes. But let's move on slightly from that because you mentioned <laughs> something earlier on. By your own admission, caricatures, cartoons were used during the propaganda of the Nazi era. And so there is understandably quite an association still, even 70 odd years later, between a lot of Jews and caricatures that were portrayed during the Second World War. Does that sort of not ring true? Do you kind of get from that point why some people might still be a bit tetchy about it? I absolutely understand why people might be tetchy about it. However, I think that we need to say, okay, let's, let's take this back. Because first and foremost, I have a big nose. Okay, I have a, a big nose that often identifies me to people as Jewish. I will be introduced to someone, the conversation will move on to being Jewish, and you know, they'll say, Oh yes, you look Jewish, or something like that, largely because of, of this nose. Now, that doesn't offend me at all. I am who I am. It's 
it's something that is part of me. I I know many Jews who also have big noses. I also know many who don't. So I'm not I'm not suggesting that every single Jew is identified by by this big nose, but it is something that you do often see within our religion. And I think that the idea that that we still get very upset about pictures of Jews with big noses not in any way for the propaganda reasons, but actually just just because, as in my case, they are they are just cartoon characters that happen to have big noses. I think that if we get upset about such things still, we are not getting away from that. We're always just going back to that same propaganda. And as I say, to me, that feels like they're they're having some sort of victory and i i think that's that's wrong i think we should take control we should take it back okay so how do we do that How, how would you suggest that people listening right now who may still be of the opinion that depicting jews in cartoon formation does offend them how do we go about breaking that that notion of offense and start to see it for the humor that it's meant in I think that first and foremost, you can't stop people being offended. People will. That's it. But the important thing is that we we can do it without fear of of that tiptoeing over eggshells, which is the thing that sometimes happens. I I have Jewish clients. I have non-Jewish clients. I have never had to worry about how my characters look with non-Jewish clients simply because there isn't anything underlying that gets in the way. Now, I, as I say, I fully understand the sensitivity over large noses on Jews. However, I feel that I don't want my hands tied by this Nazi propaganda. I want to be able to draw exactly as I feel comfortable doing in my style. And I don't want to offend anyone, but frankly, if they are offended by that, I'm sorry, but I'm not doing it for those reasons. Where do you get your inspiration from when you draw? Well, obviously, if I'm drawing for the Jewish news, often it's it's topical. So I just look through the papers and and find something that, that might have a, a Jewish slant placed on it. But otherwise, I, I'm very much someone who locks themselves away in a room with a piece of paper and and just thinks of, of subjects and, and approaches them mentally from all different directions until until you get that eureka moment where I then think that is absolutely hilarious and then I draw it and everyone looks at it blankly. Well, Paul, do you know what? I can't possibly let you go without bringing up the small matter of how much the Jewish views owes you, because some people listening to this might not realise that you are one of the same cartoonists who is actually responsible for the image that we use on our podcast cover, and of course referring (laughs) to the mobile phone, the tablet and the laptop that are all sitting around a circle, enjoying bagels and coffee. And I just suppose I had to give you credit for that. And on behalf of all the Jewish views, thank you for that, because that certainly has become an image that's synonymous with us. So thank you. Fantastic. You're very welcome. It's it's fun. And, and that's that's it. I mean, the, the bottom line with all this is it's meant to be fun. Cartooning is about having 
a good time and enjoying the drawing when it's not used for unpleasant purposes like propaganda but yeah it's it's been fun and i love doing what i do <laughs> well we love what you do as well paul solomon's cartoonist illustrator for the jewish news amongst other things thank you very much indeed for speaking to us today and if you would like more information then you can always go to our website jewishviews.co.uk you are listening to the jewish views in association with the jewish news still to come on this edition clive rosden will be here for our jewish schmooze today clive and harley will be joined by the founder of the homeopathic helpline david needleman and author and journalist jeremy havadi they'll be discussing what you've just been hearing about depicting jews in cartoon and whether or not it is necessarily offensive. Plus, as community editor Diana Toman is away this week, our very own Tony Honickberg will be speaking to Sarit Gafan from Tikkun about their Light Up a Life winter programme. But first, I think it's fair comment to say that the East End of London has for a long time been synonymous with Jews. Certainly, many years ago it was. And there are still many reminders of its Jewish heritage. And that can be found in a new book called Secret Whitechapel. It is by tour guide Rachel Kolsky and our next guest, photographer Louis Burke. Harley Baptiste has been speaking to Louis to find out a bit more about this new work. And he started by asking him to tell us why Whitechapel. I began working there in 2003 as a teacher and I was immediately seduced by the environment, the, the atmosphere. It's an amazing place. As soon as you step out of the tube station into Whitechapel Road, it's almost like you're stepping into a totally different country in some ways. But then I began to find out more about the history of the area, and it just fascinated me. And did you grow up in London yourself then? Yeah, I was a North Londoner. My my parent, my father, actually was born in the East End. He was born on Commercial Road. But by the time I was born, he and my mother were living actually in the west of London, in Greenford, which I'm sure some of your listeners will actually probably know quite well. So I never knew the East End at all. And in fact, before I started working in Whitechapel, I don't think I'd been to the East End more than maybe two or three times in my entire life. So you've been able to kind of see the different areas of, of London throughout your time growing up, growing up in North London and then moving to, to West London and now working yeah. in East London from on your website since the past 12 years. First of all, first part of the question, how has the East End actually changed in, in the past 12 years that you've been working there? But also, why would you choose to work in the East End as opposed to anywhere else in London? Well, how it's changed is really interesting because I've been photographing in the East End as, you know, since about 2003. And even in the you know, 13, 14 years I've been photographing, the city creep from the city boundary into Whitechapel, which I call a sort of fragile hinterland, really, has been really surprising. And I've seen a lot of changes, and I've documented those in my photography. In terms of working in the East End, it's a great place to work. I mean, I've had a lot of time to work with my school where I worked. I was a teacher until July this year, was largely of the Bangladeshi community. And it was it was really an eye-opener for me to find out more about them and work with them. They're a, they're a great community of people to work with. I guess there must, especially in the, I mean, throughout all of London, there are just communities within the communities. And uh, East End is, is rich in that 
I, w- I would. It's probably safe yes. to say. So, Secret Whitechapel. Uh, it's part of the Secret series, and you're working yep. with Rachel once again. You guys worked yep. on Whitechapel in Fifty Buildings last year. Yeah, absolutely. Rachel and I met because I started a five-year photographic project in Brady Street, which is in fact one of the other books of mine, which was published this year. Brady Street is a is one of the second oldest Jewish cemeteries in London. It was actually next door to my school. And the United Synagogue allowed me to photograph in there exclusively. And Ambly Books, who produced Secret Whitechapel, actually published that book earlier this year. In doing that book, I met Rachel. And Rachel is an authority on the East End. She's one of the, a recognized authority on the East End, not just the Jewish community, but the whole history of immigrant communities. And when I had the opportunity to write Whitechapel and 50 Buildings, I basically just immediately phoned Rachel and said, Rachel, you know, this is a book we need to do together. I need your expertise, your historical knowledge to combine with my photographic knowledge. And that's how we did Whitechapel and 50 Buildings. At the same time, we actually agreed with Amberley that we would do a sequel, which is Secret Whitechapel. Whitechapel in 50 Buildings was really the history of Whitechapel through its buildings, but Secret Whitechapel is more a history of Whitechapel through people, places, and events. So they're, they're contrasting books, which is quite nice for the reader if they actually you know, obtain both books. And what's really interesting, what I find really interesting, is you don't see many books where it's been a collaboration between a photographer and a tour guide. So that must make for, for a very interesting read and also viewing because obviously it's you know visual as well it's very visual yeah i mean rachel and i are very fortunate we're very complimentary in fact when we were coming up for the lists of buildings and places for both these books it's surprising how there was absolutely no conflict i mean we we pretty much immediately agreed on a list if i discovered in rachel that she there were several buildings that i love very much in Whitechapel, she loved as well which was very good for us but it is great working with, you know, because our talents overlap, that makes for a book which people tell us is both a good read, but also visually very interesting. And the whole book itself, just like Whitechapel, must just be full of history and, and stories. Is there anything, oh, yeah. not, not to give too much away to, to the audience, but is there anything yes. in particular in there which stands out to you the most, whether it's a picture or a story associated um, with one of the pictures, uh, photographs? Yeah, there are two things I was particularly passionate about in Secret Whitechapel. One was to tell the story of social housing in the East End, which particularly the the role of Henrietta and Samuel Barnett, who created several dwellings companies and created the dwellings movement. That's one thing that we talk about in Secret Whitechapel. And there are buildings left in the East End now, which, which they built in the 19th century. The other thing is somewhat nostalgic for me. When I was doing my A-levels in history many, many years ago, I looked at Russian political history, and one of the things I discovered was that Stalin, Lenin, Trotsky, Rosa Luxemburg all visited the East End for Bolshevik Congress in the early 1900s. And in the book, I, I photographed the building that they attended in, and Rachel talks about the history. So there's a lot of passion in the book. And, and there are certain things that are included because I hope the readers find them interesting, but I find them very interesting as well. I'm sure I'm sure I'm sure we all will. And but that's that's funny, isn't it, that these three 
big characters all happened to be from Russia mm. all ended up in just in Whitechapel. Why? You know, out of all mm. the places that they could end up in to have their meeting, it just happened to be in the East End of London, just you know, down the road from just just from your normal. Well, not just Jewish communities, but as you know, as you say, mm. just a widespread of communities. Just start touching on the actual communities in Whitechapel for just real quickly. How much would you say? Because we touched on it earlier in your time documenting Whitechapel. What would you say some of the biggest changes are in the area? Whether that's to do with the actual buildings themselves or the communities. Well, I, th- I think that I mean when I arrived in Whitechapel in in the early part of the so-called noughties now. Very solid Bangladeshi community, very large Muslim community. Very definitely, you're now seeing Brick Lane transform into an extension of Shoreditch, and that means you know young urban professionals, basically. When I used to walk through Brick Lane, you know, 2004, 2005, I'd be the only person walking through Brick Lane on an afternoon or a morning. Now it's just jam-packed, and you know it's a tourist destination. But that's great, you know. That's and there's nothing you know wrong with that. But we are seeing, in effect, that as the city creeps towards Whitechapel, where Shoreditch comes down from the north, that the area is transforming. And of course, the community itself, the community that was there 10, 15 years ago, is also increasing its standard of living and moving out to more desirable parts of you know Essex and Hertfordshire. So. There's, there's, you know, as has always happened in Whitechapel, you know, one community comes in, grows, leaves, and another community comes in mm. behind them. I've never myself actually been into, I guess, really the heart of Whitechapel. Where, you know, I've kind of sort of just gone around the, the general area, but I think it's definitely due a time to even just, just go for a walk. I imagine that's probably what you mm. do a lot often. You just, just kind of go through a walk through yeah. Whitechapel and just... Yeah, I do. Actually, I, I follow... Uh, one of the photographers that I'm most passionate about, one of the greatest British photographers, Don McCallum, who, you know, said once, uh, he, he used to visit Whitechapel all the time, and he said he thought it was the most visually exciting area of London, possibly the most visually exciting area of the UK. And despite the fact I don't actually work there any longer, I, I said, well, as you know, as we talked earlier, I, I've been there this morning doing some, visiting some people. Uh, I go back fairly regularly. I actually do occasionally lead people through Whitechapel and actually show them around. It is just one of the most fascinating parts of London. You know, you can go to the West End, you can go and see Buckingham Palace and the changing of the guard. But walking from, you know, Aldgate East to Whitechapel Station, particularly on a market, you know, day when the market is really heavily in, in force, it's, it's, a, it's an amazing area to walk around. Well, before people go rushing around Whitechapel, tell us, where can we find your book? Obviously, it's available online from all good bookshops. At the moment, Rachel and I are selling signed copies directly from my website, which is louisburk.com. That's L-O-U-I-S-B-E-R-K.com. If you actually just Google Secret Whitechapel, you'll probably come across my website as well. But it can be ordered online from Amazon or Waterstones or wherever good books are sold. Fascinating, isn't it? You know what? I was just thinking there, as Harley said something during that interview, it reminded me, I don't know whether or not I've ever really explored Whitechapel in the way 
that I should have done, especially considering its Jewish heritage. I was lucky enough on one occasion to go and visit the Sandy's Row Synagogue there, which I have never got over. I think it's the most phenomenal synagogue ever that I have seen. And I would absolutely love to go back. But it does sort of make me think that maybe I do need to spend a bit of time just digging into some of what is ultimately all of our Jewish London heritage. Anyway, thank you very much indeed to photographer Louis Burke speaking to our very own Harley Baptiste there, talking about Secret Whitechapel, which he has written alongside tour guide Rachel Kulski. For more information, jewishviews.co.uk. Now, seeing as we are fast approaching the season of goodwill and all of that, all right, maybe not in the Jewish calendar, but you know what I mean, we are all the same approaching the season of goodwill. Our very own Tony Honigberg has gone off to find out a bit about Tikkun's Light Up a Life Winter Programme, which always comes about this time of year. It's a social action programme which will see members of the Jewish community and non-Jewish community alike helping those in need at most this time of year. Tony has been speaking to Sarit Gafan from Tikkun and he started by asking her to tell us what exactly Light Up A Life is all about. So Light Up A Life is the charitable project run by Tikkun which was founded by Rabbi Shaul Rosenblatt and it's effectively a winter volunteering project that takes place between the 23rd of December and the 1st of January to fill the gaps left by regular volunteers that might be away for the Christmas period. The purpose is basically to show our gratitude specifically to this country, saying thank you for nurturing us and supporting us when we may have come from other countries. But it's also to spread warmth and goodwill at a time, especially to people who may be feeling vulnerable, may have extra care needs at that time of year. And so with that in mind, am I right in thinking that this isn't solely for the Jewish community then? Oh, 100%. Yes, it's very much an interfaith project. We're taking more of an interfaith focus this year, specifically because there have been so many events tragically going on that have sought to split the community. And we really want to see if we can heal that in some way by bringing people together for a higher good and to do meaningful work such as volunteering. Tell us a little bit more about the kind of volunteering you've got in mind. What sort of activities would the Light Up A Life volunteers get involved in? Mm. So we have activities such as cooking with the homeless, which might involve turning up and serving meals actually with homeless people, but it might also involve just serving to them and clearing up and socialising. We have our usual events with, for example, Jewish Care, supporting them in their social and fun activities. We have our wonderful and much-loved chocolate drops, which involves families picking up lovely Cadbury selection boxes and delivering them to patients in hospitals and staff, as well as public services like the fire stations and ambulance stations. Tell me about the volunteers themselves. Where do they do their activities? Do they come to the Tick and Light Up a Life building in Finchley Road or do the activities take place in lots of other places around London? 
Absolutely. So we'll be running our own events as usual. For example, packathons will be taking place here at Tikkun, which is in Temple Fortune. But many of our activities are spread across London, north, south, east and west. We have, for example, we're working with the Passage Homeless Charity this year, which is in Victoria. And we have the Felix Project, which is in Enfield and also in Tottenham. So we've got quite wide range. We are also at the moment speaking to charities in Manchester and Bournemouth and potentially Birmingham as well, because we want to spread the love as far and wide as possible. Everybody needs extra care at that time of year. It sounds like it takes an awful lot of organisation. It does. But you know what? That's why we have a fantastic team. And Tikkun as an organisation is very inspiring and growth orientated and nurturing. So I feel very lucky to be part of this. And I know that the team and myself all together as a team, we're very excited, but very focused on it too. This isn't the first time that Tikkun has done the Light Up a Life Winter programme, is it? Tell us a little bit more about some of the previous year's activities that went on? Well, this is our 10th anniversary, which is very exciting. I have to say I'm new to the role, so I can only tell you about my experiences as a volunteer last year. (laughs) But last year we did, I know that my amazing predecessor managed to gather nearly 1300 volunteers, which has impacted such a huge number of people. Am I right in thinking that This program has just got bigger and bigger and bigger over the years. What I will say is that it just seems to be growing exponentially every year. And we've only just launched the website. And yet we've had these fantastic volunteers who are seasoned and turn up every year and have asked us about specific activities. And it's just wonderful to get such enthusiasm and energy coming at such an early stage of the project. And if anybody would like to take part and volunteer, how do they get in touch with you? Well, they can either go to our website, which is lightupalife.org.uk, or they can like our Facebook page, which is going to have all sorts of updates and exciting posts, as well as following us on Twitter. Sarit Gafan from Tikkun talking to Tony Honickberg there about their Light Up a Life winter programme. For more information, you can go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. You're listening to The Jewish Views, and this is The Jewish Schmooze, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. Joining Harley Baptiste and me today are founder of the homeopathic helpline, David Needleman, and journalist and author, Jeremy Havadi. And the subject for this edition is based on what we had Phil speaking to illustrator Paul Solomon about earlier on, caricatures and in particular Jews depicted within them. The question is, when is it okay, if at all, for Jews to be illustrated in cartoon form, and at what point does humour become offensive? David, let's start with you. How does it make you feel if you see an illustration of someone who is supposed to be Jewish, and do you find it in any way offensive? Almost all of the time I do find it offensive, yes. All the time? Almost all of the time. Even if it's done by Jews? That would ameliorate some of the feelings, but I have to say that I'm not very happy about that either. 
because it just promulgates the same ideology of 1930s Germany. Showing Jews the big noses and big black hats. Precisely. Yeah, but what if it isn't showing them with big black hats and big noses? But it's okay to caricature a racial stereotype that is derogatory. Well, how derogatory is it, in fact? Well, it just creates that feeling that Jewish people are different, which we may well be, but different in a demonic sense. Goebbels was a a master at making the Jewish people look insignificant as a different race, as an inferior race, as an organism to be destroyed. And I think that is what gets perpetuated. Jeremy, do you agree? Well, look, I think if your question is about humour and about depictions of Jews, I think there's a great deal of actually quite harmless and actually at times very amusing humour about Jews. I mean, we have characteristics that people can laugh at, admire, mock and so on. So our disputatiousness, our the sort of closeness to family, the intelligence, perhaps the sort of supposedly nebbishy nature of some Jewish men. There, there are certain things that I think are harmless. And I think when it comes to physical depictions, we do obviously have to be careful because, you know, you don't want to trade in the kind of stock characterizations that were used by our enemies in the past. But as I say, there's, there's a lot of ways in which you can depict Jews in Jewish life harmlessly and in an amusing way and sometimes in a self-deprecating way. I think the danger is when you have so-called humorists who actually use who, who use humour as a way of masking their hate, you know, who claims to be a humorist, but in reality just uses every opportunity to launch vile attacks and slurs on Jews using the most demoniacal characteristics possible. Now, there are people like that. Those people are not humorists in any sense. These people are just using it as a, as a cover for their own bigotry. Isn't there something to be said as well about nowadays people being too politically correct or getting too offended over some of the smallest things? There are... Because there are there are a lot of funny caricatures, images, imagery, that sort of stuff that you can you can look at. And as a Jew myself, I might see that, and I'm like, oh, they don't mean any harm. But where where is that grey line? Where is that grey line between? Oh, they don't mean any harm. It, it's just a bit of a joke. And actually, now that's something to be offended. So by. what you're saying is that Jews make many funny jokes about themselves. It's all right if they make it, but it's not all right if other people make it. No, no, it's 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 all right for. A, a, Personally, I think it's all right for for anyone to make a joke within within reason. There are like I might make a a joke about myself about you know about Jewish stuff or whatever, and if one of my friends who isn't Jewish was to make one as well, to me, I wouldn't necessarily get too offended. If it's a caricature or something like that's going out into the public, that's where you have to be a little bit careful because there are more eyes, there are more more ears, there are more people. How do you decide when it's a caricature and when it's not a caricature? Well, I, I would. Partially agree with with both of the the other two. If it's a caricature that's designed to denigrate or to actually create more hatred, then obviously that is not acceptable in any way, shape, or form. If, on the other hand, it's friend to friend making a joke, that's a different story. Mm. But if it's going out as a publication, whether that's on electronic media, printed media, whatever then that's just not acceptable. We no longer have Irish jokes. We no longer have black jokes. We no longer have jokes which are detrimental to ethnic groups. So why should we allow it to happen for Jews? Is that actually true? There are jokes still made about Irish people. There are jokes still made about black people. There are jokes still made about all sorts of people with stammers even. 
there, there is a, an element of, of being too zealous and being too politically correct. And I think that does that's a problem in national life as a whole, not just in humour. But I was going to say that really the issue of where you cross the line from just caricature and exaggeration to something that is much worse is it relies on the content, really. Because if somebody wants to, as I say, trade in what are seen as sometimes very positive Jewish characteristics or ones that are not harmless. And we're talking here about, as I say, the closeness of, of you know Jewish man to his family and leaving home late Something along those lines, the disputatiousness of Jews, that can be perfectly okay. But I think when you're trading in what are wholly negative stereotypes, you're talking here about the idea of that this myth of Jews as being purely greedy, not being patriotic. And when you're making jokes along those lines, then I think you are certainly moving away from something that anybody would find funny. And by the way, it doesn't depend on whether you're Jewish or not. I think that you know a non-Jew who understands, if you like, the Jewish mentality can certainly, if they, you know, and again, some people may say there isn't such a thing, but I, th- you know, I think there are certain things we would think of as the Jewish mentality. But a non-Jew can certainly say things that would be considered to be humorless and in perfectly good taste. So it doesn't depend on whether you're Jewish or not. So how do we feel then about, uh, say, the cartoons that this discussion is based around on Paul Solomon's illustrations, frequently in the Jewish news, and the majority of people are fine with that, fine with those illustrations? That's because, I suppose, they are Jew- jokes made by Jews. See, the problem, one of the problems is the source material that people might be getting as well. If you do just a very simple Google image search for Jewish caricatures, everything that comes up is big noses, horns, yeah. kind of just like hunched over features. Not a single one in there that I found. And I've gone to, you know, page three, four or five, nothing actually remotely funny nothing actually remotely that's made me go oh there's i should kind of see the joke in there they are a lot of things from 1930s nazi germany and sort of a couple of decades after that is the, the i mean does the problem lie in the source material or is it is it more to do with actually how nowadays we're not actually doing anything about it if we if, if it is seen in in publications i, I, I doubt if i've seen any sort of cartoons or jokes with Jews wearing horns or big noses for goodness how many years. I've seen anti-Semitic things done which are not funny. But any funny joke, there are very few that are anti-Jewish. So it's just more to do with the fact that they might be a bad joke that just happens to be about Jews. Which yes, there? there could be a bad joke which might just be about Irishmen mm-hmm. or a bad joke that might be about black people or half-wits. I mean, I think we're being a bit touchy. I think you're probably right, but I don't see any reason why we shouldn't be touchy. Well, I was going to say, there is also a special sensitivity here, which is that the negative stereotypes about Jews have, as we know, been part and parcel of a process of delegitimizing and demonizing Jews through the ages that have resulted in massacres and pogroms and discrimination and the most terrible persecution and while i'm not suggesting i wouldn't defend even for a minute bigoted jokes about any other people but there is as i say a special sensitivity when it comes to this type of so-called humor in regard to jews and i think that when people are trading in you know sort of the myths of jews having big bulbous noses and horns and all the rest of it then i think you're just moving away from anything that could be considered an attempt at humor and you really are moving into a very very dark and shadowy world well i think it's all a question of perception isn't it Mm. if you perceive an underlying agenda then it could easily be offensive if you perceive an underlying comedy which actually is taking the mickey out of okay a race but not in a vindictive Mm. or 
underlyingly demonic way to demonize the, the ethnic group, then that can be very funny. Mm. I have, have no problem with that. But when you see caricatures and you see programs that have obviously been designed to put forward a political point, an anti-Semitic point, then yes, I take exception. Mm. You see, I think that there's too much made of all of this, and not just to the Jews, to other people that are, jokes are made about them, the Irish, well, all sorts of minorities. And that it, there's really no need for people to get so touchy about it. I'm not talking about the sort of jokes that were made in the Hitler days, mm. in the Nazi days, or even those similar ones that are done today. But I'm talking about the generally the ones that people take, take exception to, which don't really need them to take exception to them. I think the old ones really had very little comedy in them at all. There was a political agenda behind them. They, they were definitely not comedic. It's, the point is that I'm trying to make is that there might well be a political idea behind them, and it's been done cleverly. Well, whether there's a political, religious, any kind of other agenda behind it, these stereotypes must have had to come from somewhere. They must have had to start somewhere, and whether even if they've become what they are today, which we might view them as, you know, just some, some jokes that maybe sometimes cross the line. They would have had to come from somewhere. So therefore, they shouldn't be done at all. No, no, not not necessarily, not necessarily. But I mean, they've. That's what you're saying. No, I'm I'm saying the stereotypes have come from somewhere, but it, it's how those who create them or publish them, it's how they use those stereotypes and and how and how they actually going back to the uh, perception and how they actually perceive that these jokes could be interpreted by their readers, their communities, and and so on. I, I personally, I, I, w I would also say that I think that a lot of people would just see a harmless joke as something that's incredibly offensive nowadays. And it's it's a shame because it, it can stop a lot of good artists and good comedians from having to cut material from from shows or publications, anything like that, because they feel like they might be crossing the line when really are they? Well, I, don't, I think if there's no underlying motive and it's comedic and it actually is funny... But who decides? Who well, decides that's where the perception comes in. It's the person looking at it and how they perceive it. If you tell a, a, an offensive Irish joke and an Irishman sees it or listens to it, he's going to be as offended as we would in similar circumstances. The same with a black person. They're going to see that they see caricatures of Piccaninnies and they see caricatures of slaves singing in the fields. And this is offensive to the whole of the black population. And why shouldn't it be offensive? But if you see jokes which actually are without prejudice and that are actually quite funny, then you laugh at them and that would be acceptable. But it's all a question of perception and who is perceiving. Sadly, that's where we have to stop the discussion. My thanks to our guests, founder of the homeopathic helpline, David Needleman, and journalist and author, Jeremy Havadi. Please do feel free to share your Jewish views with us. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash the Jewish Views or on Twitter, we are at Jewish Views UK. And of course, those details are on our website, jewishviews.co.uk. Well, it's time now for our rabbinic thought for the week, and this time it comes from Rabbi 
Aaron Goldstein from Northwood and Pinner Liberal Synagogue. There is much focus in this run of Sidrot on human relationships. Some are loving and many are harmful. Deceit and rivalry abound. One half verse in one of the Sidrot is often overlooked, but on a Shabbat, just after International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women, I cannot ignore it. While Israel stayed in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel found out. Jacob, on a pilgrimage to Bethel, is struck by the death of his mother, Rebekah's nurse, and then of Rachel in childbirth. It seems that Jacob stayed away longer, perhaps in mourning. What happened with or to Bilhah is obscure from the Hebrew text. There are rabbinic texts that attempt to mitigate Reuben's actions, and an Aramaic translation of the Torah, Targum Pseudo-Jonathan, denies incest. Regardless of what sexual act occurred, the timing so soon after Rachel's death, and with Jacob away from the household, suggests more than lust. One possibility is that, with Rachel dead, she would still gain progeny via her handmaid. In order to ensure the supremacy of his mother, Leah, Reuben violates Bilhah. Another is that, by this act, Reuben is testing the water for or engaging in a coup, seeking as the eldest son to pose his father as the leader of the house. Perhaps this is one of the reasons for the repeated use of the name Israel. This was not just an act by son against father, but for leadership of a people, Israel. Whatever the reasoning and whatever the act, it seems clear that a woman in the household was used and abused by a man without any regard for her. Israel, Jacob's response, is unrecorded, other than a rebuke in his final blessing to Reuben. Bilhah is completely ignored. One might point to the practices of other peoples in the ancient Near East and to the fact that later Israelite laws strongly condemned the kind of incest committed by Reuben. For example, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is the nakedness of your father. Yet this does not make the act right. Knowing what we know today, we should not rest until domestic violence against women, children and men is eliminated. International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women forces us to pray and we hope act towards a time when we act on signs of abuse, physical or through words spoken, so that we can create a sukkah shalom, a shelter of peace, a place of future devoid of domestic violence. Very thought-provoking words as ever from Rabbi Aaron Goldstein from Northwood and Pinner Liberal Synagogue there. Thank you very much indeed to him for our thought for the week. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thank you very much to all of our guests, to cartoonist and illustrator Paul Solomons, telling us about his special article in the Jewish News this week, which, by the way, can be found on pages 14 to 15. That is about depicting Jews in caricature. To photographer Louis Burke, telling us about his new book, he's written alongside Rachel Kolsky Secret White Chapel to Sarit Gafan from Tikkun telling us about their Light Up a Life program thank you very much to our other contributors and of course to you at home for listening and of course we mustn't forget the team including our producers Tony Honickberg, Sue Greenberg and Harley Baptiste <laughs>
You can always listen to the most recent edition of The Jewish Views by visiting our website, jewishviews.co.uk, where you'll also find the facility to listen to all previous episodes as well. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News. I'm Phil Dave. Do join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.